It sobers this preacher, Lord, to reflect on our neediness. I come to you, a, a needy man, praying for an assembly of needy men, women, children. Hearts here are weary, worn, anxious, torn. We have many fears, many sorrows, many regrets, but all these have one and the same ultimate answer. We all need you. Show us how deeply we need you and how freely you offer yourself and give yourself to all who come. Show us what a wonder that is. Show us such that we will be made eager to come and will keep coming and will never leave. In Jesus' name, amen. The verses we look at today, verses 23 through 30 of Matthew 11, are the stunning conclusion to this stunning section. Verses 25 through 30, I remind you, devolve into three parts that really look in three directions. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus looks up to his Father in adoration. In verse 27, he looks to the universe in proclamation. And now in verses 28 through 30, he looks to the weary and worn in invitation. Adoration, proclamation, invitation. In the adoration of verses 25 through 26, he lifts up the Father's uh, great sovereignty in election and reprobation, hiding these things from the world who are wise and self-sufficient, revealing them to babes. In verse 27, he proclaims his sovereignty. All things were handed over to me by my Father, Jesus says. And no one really knows the Son except the Father and those he reveals them to by his sovereign will, as verses 25 and 26 say. And no one really knows the Father except the Son and those to whom he decides to reveal them. But now, as I say in these verses, he turns to those who are weary and worn and he invites them and he says, come. Let me just read it once. Come here to me, all who are laboring and have been loaded down, and I myself will give you rest. Take up my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is well designed, and my load is light. This is so momentous that he says this. Think again of the setting. Once again, he sent his apostles out. They've preached the word of God. They've done the works of God. But these cities who've seen these mighty works have not repented. And so in response to this, he asserts his father's absolute sovereignty in hiding these things from the reprobate, revealing them to his elect. He asserts his own supremacy and sovereignty and still in the midst of all this rejection and darkness, still he invites. He issues this grand invitation. The king, as it were, holds out the golden scepter that any who will come may come. A marvelous invitation. Let's us draw close. And let's listen close. And let's learn. First of all, the first issue that comes up in considering these words, Roman numeral one, is the question of where to go. Because the truth is, we're all going somewhere. I'm not a big Bob Dylan fan, I'll confess, but he never sang truer words than when he sang, you got to serve somebody. That was one song containing truth. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. We're all going somewhere. We all go somewhere for life, for meaning, for purpose. Even uh, the kid in his mom's basement playing video games, he's searching for something. He thinks he's pursuing something. The person on the street, the person in the skyscraper, the person at the Capitol, the person in Washington, D.C., all searching something, all going somewhere. And the fact is, Jesus' voice is not the only voice that says, come to me. There are many voices today saying, come to me, and making big promises. And so let's talk first about where we should not go. Capital letter A. What voices we should not heed. What invitations we should not accept. Not, first of all, well, the world calls out and says, come to me. The world calls out with total conviction and says, come to me and I will give you riches. And if we heed that call and if we come, where we find ourselves is vanity fair. All the riches are fool's gold. They're all paint. They're all glass. They're all plastic. And they're all passing. 
and we fill our trailer with them and we fill our house with them and all our casket contains is our husk. Nothing goes with us. Everything the world offers is an illusion. Come to me, it says, but it's a lie. The world says come. The flesh says come. Our own flesh says to us, come to me and I will give you satisfaction. That's its promise. Indulge me, follow me, I will give you satisfaction. But when we come, what do we find? We just find it's a lie. And we find an ever-increasing and deepening spiral of appetites and dependencies and addictions, passions, miseries, need, emptiness. Come, says the flesh, but its promise is an empty one and it's an illusion. The world says come, the flesh says come, the devil says come. The devil says come to me and you shall be as God. And we come and what wretched gods we make spending our days and nights fearfully slaving away for him doing his wills in the domain of darkness he says come he makes promises but they're all lies the world the flesh the devil false religious leaders say come come to us we'll give you truth we'll give you hidden truth we'll give you special truth truth just for you but instead they mercilessly bind burdens on us, which they themselves don't lift a pinky to move. Burdens that don't free us and that don't bring us truth. Burdens that don't deliver the promise because it's a lie. No, 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 no. Don't go to the world, the flesh, the devil, or false religious leaders. But, but, capital letter B, but Jesus says, come here to me. I feel like saying that over and over again because I know that though you say it clearly, people often, it seems to go through a, a scrambling. It seems to come through. Thank you. It seems to come through scrambled and be retranslated. You say, come to Jesus, and somebody hears you say, you're saying, come to religion. No, that's not what I'm saying. You say, come to Jesus, and they say, oh, you're saying, come to your denomination. No. You say, come to Jesus, oh, you mean come to a, come to a pastor, come to the communion table, come to the, to the baptismal tank, come to a more moral life, come to more self. No, not saying any of those things at all. We're saying, come to Jesus. Oh, yes, this idea of salvation. No, we're not saying, come to an idea. We're not saying, come to a concept. We're not saying, come to an institution. We're saying, come to a person. Come to Jesus, because that's who speaks and says, come here to me. He uses an interesting way of saying it. He actually uses an adverb that's been turned into a verb. The adverb just means over here. And it's turned into a command, come over here. It kind of a more emphatic of, of way of saying, come right here. Come to me. Not there, not there. Come to me. And it's Jesus speaking. And we must understand, it's not what we call Jesus. It's not what... American culture and fantasy calls Jesus. It's what Jesus calls Jesus. It's the Jesus that we meet in the pages of the Gospel of Matthew. The Jesus who's the son of Abraham, the son of David. The Jesus who's the Messiah, who's born of the Virgin by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. The Jesus who's named Jesus because he himself will save his people from their sin. The Jesus who shows that his claims are not just claims. Unlike every other religious leader in history of every other religion, every philosophy, every school of thought, Jesus speaks with power. This is what overwhelmed the people. He spoke with power, not like their scholars. He spoke with power. He could still a storm. He could send a demon scampering. He could heal a disease. He could raise the dead. He spoke with power. He demonstrated, this is the one who says, come to me. The Jesus of Scripture. The Jesus we really only know from Scripture. You know, like you can get an, a general idea about God from nature. You can get a vague outline of Jesus from secular history. But you really only know Jesus by reading him as he is revealed in the pages of Scripture. That Jesus. It's that Jesus who issues this unconditional, well, very open, let's say. We'll examine that later. This, this wide open invitation to come to Him. To come to Him. So I, I, I dare say that this is the great damnation of our race. Our response to that invitation is 
sufficient damnation of our race. Because if we really knew who Jesus is, who it is who says, come to me, if we really knew who was making this invitation, and if we had the slightest notion of the depth of our needs, hearing that invitation, our instant response would be, may I? I? May I come to him? And woe betide the person standing between us and him. We'd make a beeline, but the great damnation of our race is people hear that invitation and their response is, must I? Do I have to? No, you know, I don't think I have to. And I know you know, as I know, people whose lives are a misery, they're a ruin, they're a pain, people who, who live in despair, people who cast about for solutions and none of them work, and you broach the subject of Jesus and they won't give it three minutes. You invite them to a service that just hear about him. No, absolutely not. Well, let me talk to you about him. No. Could you read this? Absolutely not. This is the person who invites. And that's our natural response. And the truth is that would be all of our response. As Jesus just explained in the previous verses, apart from a work of supernatural grace, as the song we just sang said, creating faith in us. Because there's no fear of God before our eyes, Scripture says. There's none who does good. We hate God, Scripture says. We're blind, Scripture says. We're dead, Scripture says. It takes a work of God, but such an invitation. Come here to me. If we just had two healthy neurons in our brain that we could rub together and get a spark out of, they'd say, go. (laughs) You take that invitation. You go. If he's saying come, you go. Jesus says, come here to me. Well, that raises the second question I half broached a second ago. So so who should come? Roman numeral two, who? And letter A, the first question is who may go specifically? Who may go? Letter A, who may go? Well, I really want to, uh, something that leapt out to me I hadn't really noticed before. Notice that Jesus says what? He says, come here to me. And what's his next word in your translation here? Come here to me. All. You've got that in your outline. You've all got the, the same translation on your outline. Come here to me, all. All. You know, have you, have you reflected that he didn't have to say all for it to be a really grand open invitation? I mean, he could simply have said, come here to me, you who labor and are heavy, heavily burdened, right? And that would have been a very open, very generous. But he adds the word all as if anticipating people's hesitations and questions, as if to underscore the fact that he's, he's, yes, he's inviting these specific people, but all of these specific people are invited, the people who labor and are loaded down. He invites all of them. It's emphatic. It's a broad, broad net that the Lord Jesus is casting. Uh, so who is who's included in these all that Jesus says? He he says all. We remember in the gospel, first he said he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that's who he went to in the first instance. But even then, he dealt with a a Gentile centurion. And in a few chapters, he'll deal with a Syrophoenician woman. And you know, by the end of the gospel, he tells his church to go make disciples of what? All the nations. So this net is cast out very, very broadly. Not just Jews, not just Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles. Men and women and children. It includes young and old. It includes rich and poor. People of any ethnicity, whatever. Any background, whatever. The invitation could hardly be broader. All who labor and are heavily loaded. And it's as if... He anticipates hesitation and questions among those who are convicted of their sin, convicted of their need, who hear this invitation, but their first thought is perhaps, well, I'm a nobody, and he just said that the Father had given all things into his hand. How could I go to him? Surely not me, not a nobody. To that Jesus says, all. Yes, nobodies. I dare say he specializes in nobodies. I thank God he's, personally he specializes in nobodies. His, his apostles here 
Who are they? What do we know about them? Half of them, we just know their names, really. We don't know a whole lot else. And that's his inner circle. Uh, he, He deals with nobodies. He founded his church with nobodies. He reaches out and saves nobodies. The invitation, yes, is to nobodies. Jesus says all. But somebody I can imagine easily saying, you, you don't know my sin. Surely not me. Surely I'm not called to come to Jesus. But Jesus says all, all who labor and are burdened. I don't know your sin, that's true. And thank God you don't know mine either. But Jesus does. In fact, you need to remind yourself that the person speaking this is an infinite person. In his Godhood, the Son of God knew everybody who would ever hear this invitation. He knew the entire life history of everyone who would hear this invitation. And still, he says, come to me all. He says, all. Somebody might say, but everyone here shuns me. Nobody wants to spend time with me. I'm anonymous. I'm alone. Surely not me. Yet Jesus says all. He doesn't care who shuns you. He calls you. He invites you. The invitation goes out. All. Come to me. All. Well, somebody says, but I am a seething mass of brokenness and issues and problems and self-involvement and misery. He can't mean me. Except he says all. So this authority I have, this word I bring to you from the king, this word says all. So yes, it would include that person. Finally, someone might say, but I'm filled with fear. I'm scared to do much of anything. Uh, Dare I come? Well, if you're one of all, and if you hear that invitation and you want to come, it says all. It says all. And so, friend, what I say to you who want to come but have some reluctance within you, I say, in your heart, print out a ticket and put on it this verse and the word all. And then cling to that for all your worth and go to Jesus. And if a devil were to stop you or the archangel himself were to stop you and say, I've watched you. What makes you think that you could come to Jesus? Take out that ticket. And you say, he says all. He says all. So I come. I've got a ticket I cling to. My, my own ticket is John 6.37, where Jesus says, all the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, what? I will never cast out. That's my ticket. I can't argue my worthiness. I I have no argument. I'd grant every accusation. And I'd add a few. That's not why I come. He says all. He says I will not cast out. All. Who's fool enough to turn down such a grand invitation? It's the condemnation of our race that the answer to that question is most. And yet the invitation comes out. All. So Jesus adds more to that all, telling us about these people who he invites. And let me just insert this to make sure I don't forget it. Remember he's saying this against the backdrop of these cities not repenting. So that means people hearing this invitation might be citizens of those cities. And they might say, well, but my city didn't come. That, 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 that parade came through, that mission came through. My family didn't come. My neighbors didn't come. My employer didn't come. My business associates didn't come. My friends, the people I grew up with, they didn't come. And still, Jesus makes this invitation because, yeah, Israel messed up. Judah messed up. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, as John says. But still the invitation goes out. Your city didn't repent, but still you may come. Your people didn't repent, still you may come. person hearing this today, whether on the internet or here, might say, well, my family's Roman Catholic. We, don't, we, we, don't, we aren't born agains. And yet the invitation of Jesus comes out. And if your family hasn't come, still you may come. 
My family's Muslim. My family's Mormon. My family's Jehovah's Witness. My family's atheist. All my friends are unbelievers. Well, that's sad. But the question is, Jesus says all. He says, come. Will you come? You may come. Jesus says all. So who may go? All. Who should go? Letter B. Who should go? He says, all who are laboring and have been loaded down. Well, the first thing that I want to ask and answer very quickly and decisively, I can easily imagine somebody hearing this. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are laboring and loaded down. <clears throat> so does that mean that some aren't? Yeah, all of those who are laboring and loaded down, you come. So are some people not laboring? Are some people not loaded down? Well, the answer to that is, is remember the other place where Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call sinners to repentance. Well, when he said that, did he mean that there is anybody righteous? No. <laughs> Certainly not. If you've read your scripture, you know the answer to that right away. No, he's not saying that. So what is the difference? Well, there aren't any who are righteous, but there are too many who what? Think they're righteous. Feel righteous. And so when somebody comes offering forgiveness on repentance, they say, I don't need that. I'm okay. I'm good. And so apply that here. Is there anybody who is not laboring and who is not crushed beneath a heavy load? No, there's nobody like that. But what are there? People who think that they aren't. People who insist that they aren't. In fact, I tell you that on the tombstone of the kingdom of man will be the words, I got this. That that is the death rattle of the kingdom of man. I got this. Well, isn't that one way of kind of uh, rewording Satan's pitch to Adam and Eve? God says, don't eat this. God says, eat everything else. And Satan says, God says, God says. You got this. Doesn't that look good? Don't you want to know? Don't you want to be your own man, your own boss? You got this. That was the sales pitch. And that's our death rattle. I got this. And so no matter how, and you know, if you've witnessed at all, you gotten, if we've gotten out of our shells at all and talked to unbelievers, you've run into this. People whose lives are a pain-ridden misery, who are making an absolute hash of their lives, but they just need one more good break. They just need a little more luck. They just need to try a little harder. They're sure they can pull this out. <laughs> because to say otherwise, to say that their whole life has been a lie, and that they need to just trash the whole thing and start over. Which sounds very much like repenting, doesn't it? And being born again. Which is exactly what the gospel calls. But they can't do that. Because pride insists. I got this. So are there people who aren't laboring and heavy laden? Nope. No such creature. What are there? People who are given everything they've got to convince themselves. That they're just fine. That they got this. So, what does he mean when he speaks of those who are laboring and heavy laden? Uh, Henry Alford, in the, uh, he's a commentator from the 1800s, said very well that these two terms refer to the active and the passive sides of human misery. Actively, we labor, which is a Greek word that means to work your way to exhaustion, to work so hard you're worn out. Sometimes it just means to be worn out because you've worked so hard. And the other one means to be crushed beneath a heavy burden, the active and the passive side of human misery. So I think first, the first people Jesus would have had in mind are those laboring under law, either actual and misunderstood or fortified law. What do I mean by this? Well, anyone who looks to the law to earn his salvation is going to work himself silly and be crushed to death. Because You've got, if you break one commandment, you're under God's curse. If you want to be saved by law, you must have perfect womb-to-tomb righteousness. And nobody except Jesus has that. So try to earn your salvation by the law. And, and I think of the, uh, one of the verses that pierced me as the Lord was saving me as an unbeliever. Uh, Isaiah, uh, all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. So yeah, those who are laboring to be saved by law are crushed. And those who are laboring under legalism are also crushed. Uh, we're going to see more about that in the chapters to come. These are the people who hate Jesus. And so if you're hungry on a Sabbath walking through a wheat field, you can't eat the wheat. 
because legalism says don't. And if you're sick on the Sabbath and there's someone who can heal you, we can't do it on the Sabbath because legalism says don't. And on and on and on. And these are leaders who, uh, Matthew 23, 4, Jesus says they tie up heavy burdens, uh, using a word related here to Jesus' word, tying up heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Why? Because Jesus gave them a homework assignment and they didn't do it. Do you remember what the homework assignment was? Go study this verse that says, I want mercy and not sacrifice. And they didn't need to do that because they're so smart. And that's exactly what they knew nothing of. They knew nothing of God's mercy. And so they knew nothing of God's mercy. That's the first person I think Jesus would have in mind. The person either laboring under law to try to earn salvation or the person laboring under legalism. Secondly, who does this apply to? I would say to you it applies to everyone because trying to be God when you aren't is really hard work. When you're not God, trying to be God is really hard work. And that is what everybody outside of Christ is doing. Every one of us is trying to be God. And we're not. We don't have what it takes. 24-7, 365, we got to pretend that we understand the universe, that we've got a grip on things. We've got a grip on the universe. The, and, and every time there's something that points us to the real God, we've got to tamp that down real quick, and we've got to paint it over with a bunch of lies so we don't see it anymore and go back to feeling uneasily good about ourselves because of the lies we tell ourselves because it's really hard being God when you're not God. And none of us is. And you, you just see it all around our society. I mean, the, can I get an amen if I say that the world has completely lost its mind? It's completely lost its mind. Standing naked in front of a mirror, they can't even tell you what they're looking at. How bad does it have to get? How bad does it have to get? Well, it's that bad and it's getting worse. It's not going to be better. Why is it? Because they're stupider than we are? Oh, no, no, we're all equally stupid. The only hope is for the grace of God to open our eyes to our stupidity and get us to come to Jesus and take his yoke on ourselves. Amen? That is the only hope. But the world doesn't, doesn't admit that hope, so they work and they work and they work. And they wear themselves out. They take drugs. They, they entertain their whole lives away so they don't have to think about things. And, uh, yeah, they're wearied. Yeah, they're crushed. And that's the sort of pe person Jesus calls to you. Come to me. Come over here to me, all you who have worked yourselves weary and are crushed beneath the burdens. And that's who should go. Everybody should go. But who will go? Well, the previous verses told us who will go. Verses 25 and 26 remind us that God hides his truth from the world, from the reprobate. They don't see it. And so they're the ones who say, no, I'm good. I don't need what you're offering. I got this, I got this, and they don't come. The ones who come are the ones who the Father reveals these things to, His people, the one Jesus decides to reveal the Father to. Just this is what Jesus said. They're the ones who hear this invitation and they just are groaning and weary and they hear the promise of rest from Jesus and they say, yes, oh yes, oh thank you, yes. They will come. And where to go? To Jesus. And who may go? Who should go? All those who are weary and are heavily burdened. Next question, Roman numeral 3, why go? And the first answer, why go, is because of who we find there. That's the first and best answer. Go because of who you find there. Who do you find? Well, Jesus says, come here to me. And I myself will give you rest. Now, there, there's an emphasis there. It is I, Jesus, who speak. I myself, I, I won't have an attendant do it. I, I, I won't contract this out. You don't need to talk to Mary or Joseph or the Pope or anybody else. Can't help you. I myself will give you rest. Jesus will give you rest. Now, we just need to, don't, don't hurry past this. I, I've tried to burn this into you. Anyone can make a promise. And everybody does. The world is full of religious pretenders and philosophical pretenders telling you with absolute certainty things that if you, just, if you were just to stop and ask the question, how do you know this? What's your authority for this? 
everything falls to pieces because they've got no authority. They don't know it any more than you do. They're just convincing. They're just charismatic. And they've got 50,000 followers. Can they all be wrong? Yes. Yes, 50,000 and more can be dead wrong. But you see, you see, this is the art of religious huckstering. It's making the promises people want to hear in a plausible way, and maybe with stained glass, and maybe with smoke, and, and strobe lights, and whatever it takes, whatever it takes to put people in the right frame of mind to be deceived, but they make these huge promises and people want to hear them. But the thing is, the people making these promises are pretenders, and as Peter says, they're promising you freedom, and they're slaves of corruption. Which just give the news cycle a few cycles and you'll find out eventually about the corruption they're slaves to. But see, that's the difference between every last one of them and the person who's making this invitation, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus not only promises, but he delivers on his promises. His words are not just words. In fact, the way he created the entire universe was by his words. Words have power when they're God's words, and these are God's words. These are the words of the one who just said, all things have been delivered over to me by the Father. Remember I pointed out when we were thinking about that, that that is what grounds all of his promises. Well, it's that person who now says, come to me and I myself will give you rest. Well, you know, if it were anybody else, I just wouldn't, wouldn't count on it. But this person, ah, yeah, that we should count on. When Jesus makes the promise, he himself can deliver on the promise. So because of who we find there is the first, best, and sufficient reason why we should come. You come and you find Jesus. But also, secondly, because of what we find there and what do we find there. What's the word he says twice? Rest. Verb and noun. I myself will give you rest, verb. And he says, you will find rest for your souls. What is this rest that he talks about? My mind first goes to Romans 10.4. Romans 10.4 says that Christ is the culmination of the law for righteousness for all who believe. And I tie that in with Matthew 5.17 where Jesus says, I didn't come to tear down the law and the prophets. I came, I came to do what? To fulfill them. So maybe I've been laboring and crushed under the burden of trying to fulfill the law and seeing what an absolute complete failure I am. But I look to Jesus and here's someone who does fulfill the law and the promises. All of the demands, all of the foreshadowings, all of the predictions, they're all fulfilled in Jesus. And he says, come to me. He is the culmination of the law and the prophets. And when I come to him, I can rest. Because that's where they come to a rest. That's where I come to a rest. The righteousness I never could have ever achieved by obeying the law, I have that in him. He is that righteousness. And the purpose and the meaning, the forgiveness, the redemption, it's all in him. So he gives that rest, that spiritual that spiritual rest. We find that in Jesus. We find fulfillment in Jesus. Colossians 2.10 verse 9 said that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the deity in bodily form. And then playing on that word fullness, verse 10 says, and you are filled full in Him. We find fulfillment in Jesus. We find the culmination of the law in Jesus. And if I can put it just in two ways, we find rest of conscience in Him because we know in Jesus, on His work and on His Word, we have forgiveness for all of our sins. We have redemption. We have reconciliation to God. We have a relationship with God on God's terms. We can have rest of conscience. But I'd add something else. It may seem a little more ephemeral to some, but you also have what you could call cognitive rest cognitive rest. What do I mean by cognitive rest? Well, I'm talking about the end of this whole project of trying to be God, trying to make up my own meaning for everything, trying to figure out what everything means, trying to figure out what's stupid and wise, trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong when I have no authority, I have no basis, I have no purchase to grab onto. But when I come to Jesus, 
then and only then I can begin to know. I can begin to know truth. Resting on Him. Why? Because He is the truth. Because He speaks the truth. And this is another one of those things that the Old Testament pointed to. What does the Old Testament say? What's the beginning of knowledge? The fear of the Lord. And to believe in Jesus is to enter into the fear of the Lord. To rest my mind on Jesus Christ. So as, as one has very well said, Jesus Christ not only saves our soul, He saves our minds. He saves our thinking. And we can rest on Him. So, where to go? Go to Jesus. Who may go? All. Who should go? All who labor and are heavily burdened. Why? Because of who we find there. Because of what He gives us there. Finally, I'll ask an answer. How go? How go? First, and with all my heart, empty-handed. Go empty-handed. There is no preparation. There are no preliminaries. There's no paperwork. I just had a surgical procedure recently and I was told that I could I could fill out these forms online or if I didn't I'd have to come earlier and fill them out there so I filled them out online and I went there and they still gave me like 14 pages of stuff I still had to fill out before they do this procedure and I kind of thought good thing I'm not in a hurry (laughs) good thing I'm not dying right now of whatever this is Uh, Because there's all these preliminaries. But that's not this. He doesn't say, come to me after you. He doesn't say, come to me if you. He doesn't say, come to me provided that you have already. Dot, dot, dot. There's no preparation. And if you understand Scripture, you realize that's because there's no, no preparation that we can make. Because we've already done quite enough. Amen? Isn't that the point? We've already done quite enough. What we need to do is not do more of it and not try harder. We need to stop doing what we've been doing and come to Jesus. And, and I hope that we all understand this. What do you bring to Jesus? I know some people think they, they brought a whole lot to Jesus. They're smart. They're personable. They're accomplished. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. What do we bring to Jesus, really? We bring our sin. We bring our guilt. We bring our lostness. We bring a a terrible record and a terrible prospect. We bring Jesus all that. And the truth is that's exactly what he's telling us to bring. Because he knows our frame. He remembers we're dust. He knows we're sinners better than we'll ever know, thank God. You think, boy, God has really shown me some of the corruption in my heart. Oh, my friend. Oh, my dear friend. Oh, when we get to heaven, we will thank God that he only gave us a little bit of a peep of the corruption that's in our heart. And if we ever saw what really lives there, it would blast our souls. But that's what he says to come with. Come with that. Because why? Remember, what is the call to the disciple? We saw it a bit in chapter 10. We'll see it more in chapter 16. What does he say? The first thing he says is to do what? To deny yourself. Well, then I don't bring anything. And what I have, I deny when I come. To deny yourself, pick up your cross and and just refresh my memory. What do you do on a cross? Well, you die on it. That's all you do on a cross. So what what am I required to bring to help out with this process? Oh, nothing. Not not one thing. I've helped enough. I, I need to stop helping and let him save. And, you know, I know we all formally say this, but I I know that some of us have had teaching that that hides the full truth of that. We really do think we bring something. We bring our good sense in choosing Jesus. We bring our our goodwill and our good choices. Oh, you know, friend, you know what? You don't bring anything. You don't bring one thing. Uh, You just come with sin. You come with guilt. You come with helplessness. And that's the person Jesus saves. And that's really the only person Jesus saves. Because to go to Jesus, I I am going from everything else. To turn to Jesus, I'm turning from works. 
and my imagination of my good works. I'm turning from my imagination of my virtue. I'm turning from self-righteousness, self-confidence, self-reliance, well, self. And from all that, I turn to Jesus and I throw myself on His mercy alone. I turn from my, my baptism, if I thought that helped me, my confirmation, my communion, if I thought that helped me, my tithing, my Sunday school, my VBS, my experiences, my feelings, everything I think that I did to save myself, I turn from every bit of that and I turn to Jesus alone. How does Jesus describe the people who come to Him? Poor in spirit. Pockets turned inside out, wallet emptied, bank account, well not zero. (laughs) Bank account in immense red ink. And that's what we bring. Nothing. Empty handed. Poor in spirit. Mourning. Wretched. Blind. Naked. Dead. These are all just scriptural descriptions of the way we all are. We bring that to Jesus and what do we find? Well, first, we find Jesus. And second, we find rest. Who do you have to be to bring rest to all that? Jesus. Just Jesus. But thank God He's the one making the promise. How do you come? We come empty-handed. Come empty-handed. Secondly, how do you and I come? Wholehearted. Wholehearted. Empty-handed. Wholehearted. Uh, Look at verse 29. And you see dedication. Take up my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's dedication. See, to come to Jesus is to believe in Him, to trust Him, to call on Him, to pray to Him, to rely on Him. It's not a matter of moving my feet down an aisle or up an aisle or across an aisle. It's not a matter of moving my feet at all. It's a matter of the heart. Believing, trusting, relying, calling out, praying to Him. This is how I come to Jesus. And this commences an eternally yoked relationship. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So, I remind you, what is a yoke? A yoke is a, is a piece of wood that joins together two animals to, to pull. It, 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 it is used as a metaphor for taking service, for being committed to service, taking on a yoke of bondage. And so when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, he is saying, you commit yourself to belong to me as my servant. Now, I, I say in all friendliness, that if, if you ever use the expression that somebody should try Jesus, I would ask you please not ever to say that again. Because does this sound like a, 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 a call to try him? Is taking a yoke on me a picture of trying something? Do I then take the yoke off? No, taking the yoke on means I'm yours. And so that's why I say to you very deliberately and very uh, considerately, there is no such thing as an ex-Christian if you define Christian biblically. Now, there are lots of people who've tried Jesus and walked away. There are lots of people who've prayed a prayer and walked away. They've signed a card and walked away. They've joined a church and walked away. They've become pastors and walked away. They've written books and walked away. And I would tell you that if they've walked away, not a one of them was a Christian, if you define it biblically. And and there's the whole thing. What is a Christian biblically defined? Well, we've said all of it in this sermon, really. What's the first thing? Will you deny yourself? Well, let me stop you right there. (laughs) If you deny yourself, and then you take yourself back and walk away from Jesus, what didn't you really do? (laughs) You didn't really deny yourself. You sort of denied yourself, you know? You you put... I I don't know what to use. Okay, I'll, I'll use something you can't see. Here it is. You put it down... But you kept your grip on it. <laughs> you didn't really deny yourself. And, and here, what does he say? Take my yoke upon you. Well, now, if you commit yourself for all eternity to Jesus' service and then walk away, what didn't you actually do? You didn't actually commit yourself to Jesus for all eternity. And, and take the phrase from the middle. Deny yourself, pick up your cross. And what do you do on a cross? You die on a cross. 
So if you died to yourself, again, how do you then walk away from Jesus? Take up your cross and follow me. So I say on that basis that if you define a Christian biblically, there is no such thing as an ex-Christian. There just are ex-people who said they were Christians. And of that, there are many, sadly. But perhaps they were never even taught this, and that's sad. So dedication is the nature of our relationship to Jesus. We don't try him, we take his yoke on us. And secondly, uh, expectation. There's dedication in verse 29a and dedication, verses 29b and 30. Because I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So there's hopeful expectation because of who calls us, because I am gentle and humble in heart. How is Jesus gentle? Well, for an all-holy Savior who is God incarnate to bear with us, take us, keep us, not destroy us after a couple of seconds, uh, but bear with us. Yes, that's gentle. And I'll tell you, you know, have you ever seen somebody you really respect, an adult on his knees talking to a child? That's Jesus talking to us. Only he's really kind of not on his knees. He's more flat on his belly with a magnifying glass. But, but he's gentle. This, he, what, what is the concept of the Greek word gentle, praus? It is the concept of power under control. And that's how Jesus relates to us. His power is under control so he can deal with us gently. But then maybe when you've seen this, he says, I'm humble in heart. You may have thought to yourself, I think forgivably, humble isn't the first word I'd think of for somebody who says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Humble, it's not the first word that I would think of of somebody who just said, the Father's delivered everything into my hands. Humble isn't that word. Well, it's because we're thinking of it wrong in this instance. Uh, first of all, remember that humble was not, a, not a, an admirable trait to the Greeks. They thought humble, humble is not what we think of as somebody who is not a braggart and not proud. To the Greek, a person who is humble was somebody who was uh, fawning and obsequious and making a show of being lowly. It was a contemptible thing, not an admirable trait. And yet Jesus says, I'm humble. What does he mean when he's humble? Well, I tell you just very simply the very fact that he's standing there in sandals with rude garments on, talking to a bunch of nobodies and telling them to come to him, that's humble. Because who are we talking about? We're talking about the high king of heaven before whom angels prostrate themselves. And yet he's here with these nobodies and thank God he's here today with a bunch of nobodies too. The biggest nobody of whom is talking to you about him. He still is with nobodies. Why? Because he's humble in heart. You find the word humble in Philippians 2, and that will tell you everything you need to know about what Jesus means here. Remember Philippians 2? He says, Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of sinful flesh, He humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. That's what he means by humble. Though existing in the form of God, he had the infinite condescension to clothe himself in the nature of a creature and a lowly creature and walk with other lowly creatures for our salvation. That's humble. And the only reason we can know Jesus is because he's gentle and humble. So, hopeful expectation because of who calls us. Hopeful expectation because of what he gives to us. He says, uh, my yoke is well designed and my load is light. We aren't actually created to live the way we live. We aren't created to live on ego, lies, and delusions. We do, but that's not what we're made for. What are we made for? to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that's the yoke of Jesus. It's what we were made for. It's made for us. It's not a yoke that you will put on your neck and, oh, there's a knob here that digs into your neck and, oh, there's a splinter here that just chafes and scrapes and, oh, there's this whole ridge back here. No, it's, it's, what, it's, it's made for us because we're made for it. God's service is perfect freedom. 
And that's what this yoke is. It's made for us. We're made to live with God. We're made to live for God. That's the fuel we're supposed to be running on. We've been pouring corn syrup into the gas tank all these years. And now finally we get gasoline. And high grade. Because this is the yoke that God gives. His service is perfect freedom. So, uh, we should come empty-handed. We should come... Uh, pardon me, let me just catch myself. We should come empty-handed. We should come wholehearted. And finally, we should come now. Let her see. Now. From wherever we are to Jesus. From whoever we are to Jesus. From whatever we are to Jesus. We should come now. There will never be a better time to come than to come now. If you are a believer, then you simply say amen. I, come, I came, I come, I will come. <laughs> I will keep coming to Jesus. That's my forever. If you're not a believer, then again, I say to you, you will never have, you not only will never have a better time than now, you will never have another time than now. God has so graciously given you yet another opportunity to hear him. And don't say I'm too young. Don't say I'm too old. Don't say I'm too anything. The only question is, Do you hear him calling? Do you see you need him? Do you want to come? Then you should come. So you've heard the king's grand invitation. Come, come to me. Come now. Come and stay. Your world hasn't come. Your state hasn't come. Your country hasn't come. But you may come. There's another hymn we sing that has the line, Why was I made to hear his voice? And enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Well, it's sad what they do, but don't let what they do be what you do. You hear the call, you come. You come now. You must come. And if you want to come, you may and you should come. And when you have come, you will know that it's the grace of God alone that brought you. Let's take a moment to think about this, write down any final notes you have, and then I'll close this in prayer, and we'll sing together. Heavenly Father, just overwhelmed now to think I've, I've got the greatest calling in the world to be able to proclaim the untrackable riches of Christ. What a wonderful, wonderful privilege it is, humbling, overwhelming, to be able to commend and proclaim such a Savior. I do pray for the powerful work of the Spirit of God, bringing people to you. All those who know you, help us every day and every moment to come. And those who have not yet known you, please make this the day, Heavenly Father. Work faith in their hearts. Grant them repentance. Draw them to your Son, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.